receive this reading from 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now, for a little while, you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. When Pastor Ginger asked me to preach for one of the Sundays that she would be on her wellness leave, I was both excited and terrified. You see, I am the behind-the-scenes clergy person on staff. In fact, it is my job to empower others with the tools that they need to do their ministries effectively. Now, most of you know that I oversee the operations and the finance and HR and facilities of our beautiful, beloved foundry. So when she asked me, I thought, sure, I would love to integrate the Bible with an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> Maybe even put it on a PowerPoint slide deck. But we don't have any screens, so I digress. It's also not lost on me that today I'm given a sermon about a guy who gave a sermon. So what I would like for us to do today is to take a step back and consider what it must have been like behind the scenes. What was it like for Peter and the disciples after they received the Holy Spirit? And what it meant for Peter to take that very first brave, bold step to share this experience with others, and then give this direction for the church in the days ahead. Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, I invite you into this space. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As we heard in this morning's scripture, so eloquently read by my friend Mark, this is considered to be the proclamation of Christ, or what in the Greek is called the Easter kerygma. Now we know that this is not the first Easter sermon. That was preached by our sisters Mary and Mary on the day of resurrection. What's unique about this message is that we are introduced to the Holy Spirit. Now, it often begins with this overlooked verse, half verse, if you will, that really sets the tone for Peter's story. 
And it sets the mood and the space for this story. Now we know earlier in the book of Acts, Peter gives another story, a different tone, one of trepidation and warning, if you will, about the impending traitor, Judas. Today's passage is about the Redeemer, Jesus. So as we unpack this together, let's go behind the scenes and see what might have been happening. First, we know that there was a party. It was the Jewish festival of Pentecost where Jews and Gentiles were both present and the house that Peter and the disciples were meeting in was relatively close to this temple. They had gathered in this house because Jesus had just promised them that they would experience in that room the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that what they experienced that day was supernatural. We know that they were touched by the fire of the Holy Spirit, causing them to speak in languages that they didn't know, but were known to others and spoken in their native tongue. Now, as a child of the 70s and 80s, I recall this Bible story being taught to me on a flannel board. You guys know those? You remember those? My treasured and beloved Sunday school teacher, Miss Kay, she would put this flannel board on an easel. And on that flannel board was a picture of 12 dudes sitting on the floor of a house, empty house. And she would tell us, I want you to draw a picture of a flame. I want you to color this flame and cut it out. And then each one of us were told, as children, mind you, to put this flame on the top of a disciple's head. She told the story. Super weird. <laughs> now, in hindsight, it was a bit strange and probably a little frightening for a child, but I, it was a helpful one. I'm a visual learner, and as an adult, I also process information internally. And while I geek out on, I'm really not kidding, I geek out on graphs and charts and building plans, and really anything that's gonna help me see first what I'm about to learn, I also deeply appreciate imagination. So, indulge me if you will. Let your imagination take you to this space where Peter and the disciples were. You can close your eyes for this exercise, I won't be offended. Consider what it must have felt like standing in that crowd that day, gathered for this festival of Pentecost. Listen to the sounds, the chatter. Are there children laughing? Well done, Cook. Is there music? What do you smell? What do you see? Can you see the house where the disciples are? Can you hear those strange noises that are coming from the house? Now consider the moment when 12 men emerge from this house. Do they look scared? Are they smiling? What are the crowds saying? Are the crowds gossiping? Are they whispering? You can open your eyes now. Scripture tells us that when the disciples emerged from that house, the crowds immediately accused them of being drunk. They had no idea what was happening, 
They just knew that something didn't look right and it didn't sound right. So imagine what it must have looked like for this one person to emerge from these 12 and slowly step towards this crowd. Now the crowd was close to the house. It's not as if Peter is stepping into or onto a stage where there's a good 10 to 15 feet away from him. In fact, this relatively small and liminal space between these two groups of people that are so closely related together, this interstitial space, took an incredible amount of courage to step into. Now, it's important that we know who Peter really was. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. I would argue that he may have even been the two I see, if you know what that means. Most of the time, Peter was loyal. Nonetheless, he was regarded as a leader by his peers. Peter was bold and held true to his Galilean roots and reputation of being brave, courageous, and blunt. The Galileans knew what it meant to be parsimonious, get straight to the point. Now imagine if any of you who study the Enneagram, Peter was a solid eight. He was, however, not an exceptional scholar, nor was he a brilliant speaker. In fact, Galileans had their own dialect and often struggled with those guttural sounds of their language. Their pronunciation was considered harsh in Judea. And here he was, one person, speaking on behalf of a group of people to all of their people. What gave him this authority to speak? More importantly, what was he gonna say and how was he gonna deliver this message in such a small, small space? True to Peter's God-given name, Petros, which literally means a rock detached from the living rock, Peter emerges from this group confidently placing his whole body, his full power, his entire countenance and prophetic calling on a rock. He steps up on this rock, looks out onto the crowd and he begins to speak. Now, I wanna take you behind the scenes of another experience, one that I had while traveling with a group of worship leaders to Cape Town, South Africa. It was January of 1997, and we were invited to lead worship at the International Youth Conference for the Salvation Army, where leaders of the Salvation Army had signed their first commitment to reconciliation for past stands on apartheid. While I was at this conference, one of the speakers shared about the opening of a new facility near Johannesburg. This facility was a home that was dedicated entirely to caring and loving for infants who were born HIV positive. Now remember, this was in 1997. This home was near Dornfontein, if you're familiar with the area, which at the time had exceptionally high crime rates. Now, being a new mother myself, I had a two-year-old and a nine-month-old at home, I felt compelled to go and see this place. And since our group had to fly out of Johannesburg to return to the States, I asked the hotel staff to help arrange for a cab for me to go visit this home. I wanted to go see Etimbini, which is the name of the home, 
and translated means a place of hope. The hotel staff hailed this cab for me, and when the cab driver arrived and I told them where I wanted to go, they were both very skeptical. It took us about 20 minutes to get there, and when I arrived, I saw this palatial building, but it had this huge brick fence around it with an even taller wrought iron fence surrounding it. When I got through, I could see that it was this brightly yellow colored building with cartoon characters painted on the exterior walls. We are here, said my driver. I thanked him and let him know he didn't need to wait as I would probably spend a few hours at this home. I started to ask his name, but before I could finish my sentence, he interrupted me with this huge smile and said, no, miss, I will stay here until you're done. He obviously knew something that I didn't know, and I knew better than to argue. <laughs> so for the next three hours, I wandered around this home, visiting with the caregivers who had committed their lives to loving on these infants and toddlers. I held some of these babies. I rocked them. I learned their stories. I learned how some were born in shacks, some were born in alleys, but each one of them were there because their birth mother or someone in their family knew of the work that was being done at Etimbini and that that was their only chance for hope. I remember the songs that the caregivers were singing. I remember the, <laughs> the smiles that emanated from these teeny tiny cribs. Regardless of the life sentence that this was handed to these children, there was so much joy in this space, indescribable joy in this home. I am so grateful for the caregivers who chose to step into that interstitial space of justice and care for those beloved babies. Now, I don't know if the disciple Peter knew he was stepping into an interstitial space when he stood on that rock to preach. What I do know is that he was keenly aware that the message he was about to bring may not land well. Peter's message was one of rebuke and repentance, a message of discomfort and joy. And because he was a member of that community and a disciple, he knew what was at risk if he didn't share this experience of receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love, I love what the brilliant theologian Willie Jennings writes in his commentary on the book of Acts when referring to the importance of this message from the disciples and from Peter. Jennings writes, there would be no chance of success for the church unless the spirit of the living God breathed upon their witness. Peter stood bravely on that rock because he knew what was happening behind the scenes in that crowd. He knew he had to remind them of what the prophet Joel said, those harsh words, for the folks to even understand that this transformative power and liberation was now available to them. Peter had to be both vulnerable in his lament and yet embody this hope, all while giving clear instruction and guidance for these days ahead. Now, 
As theologians, and I will argue that we are all theologians here today as we study this text together, I want to reflect on how we can apply these stories and this scripture to our context now. So I invite you to receive this interpretation from the book Struggling to Be the Sun Again by the Asian womanist theologian Chung Hyun Kyung as she shares this deep understanding of what this could be like. She quotes the Filipino theologian Elizabeth Tapia and says, theology is not a theoretical exercise. It is a commitment and participation in people's struggle for full humanity and a discernment for God's redemptive action in history. It is theology in action, human liberation, not God talk is the primary focus of theology. There is no dualism or sequential order between action and reflection. I want to repeat that last part. A commitment and participation in people's struggle for full humanity and this discernment of God's redemptive action in history are an integral whole. Let's go back to South Africa. After spending three hours at Etimbini, the sun was setting and the caregivers were clearly becoming more anxious and eager to get me back on the road. They walked me to the street and I was surprised to see that the cab driver, as he said he would be, was waiting for me. The caregivers and the cab driver exchanged words in a very tense tone, using a language that I did not understand. They were all clearly concerned about something. As we drove back to the hotel, the cab driver took a much different route. He was quicker with his turns and aggressive in his driving. I remember feeling so nauseous. At one point, I recall seeing a group of men on one of the dirt roads with machetes and weapons. And I got scared. Then I began to hum and think of the song that my grandmother sang to me as a child. You may know it. I'll sing a little bit. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. When we finally made it back to the hotel, the staff, my team, and the cab driver were relieved that we'd made it back safely. He told me the cost of my travel, and I was embarrassed at how little he was charging me. I handed him the money, and then I asked him what his name was. <laughs> and he gently smiled and looked me in the eye, and he said, Miss, my name is Peter. We know that the disciple Peter's message in Acts came from a deep place of reflection. Peter had witnessed painful oppression, but he knew with full faith and confidence that spirit would intercede. We know this because we heard it in 1 Peter chapter 1 in his message. 
His message was also one of hope, blessing, and abundance, not scarcity, abundance. It was a reminder of the promise that the Messiah was who he said he would be. Peter was so full of this indescribable joy saying, my flesh will live in hope. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice and an indescribable and glorious joy for you are receiving the outcome of your faith. Peter had this message of transformative power and wanted everyone to know that human liberation was available through Christ. And this is so critical because here at Foundry, we do justice work. Someone once asked me in one sentence, what does Foundry do well? And I said, ha, of course, we show up. We show up in solidarity for our black and brown siblings at protests. We show up on the Hill for just legislation. We show up at Pride for full, inclusive, and accepting love. We work hard, long, arduous hours to be a community and a church that is on the right side of history. But this work is not easy, and it's daunting, and it's hard. Sometimes it's helpless and heart-wrenching, and let's normalize this word in church, y'all. It's downright depressing. But this message that Peter brings us is one we need to constantly remind each other of. This joy, this indescribable joy of being faithful. And I know it is hard. I know it is hard to remain faithful in this fight when we see our unhoused neighbors evicted from their safe spaces of our public parks. I know it is hard to remain faithful in this fight when women of color are dismissed, shamed, and forced to live under a colonial double standard. I know it is hard to keep fighting for our transgender children who are being demonized, harmed, ignored, and then persecuted. But we stay fighting. We share in this struggle for full humanity because we know that when we remain faithful, not just for ourselves, but for others, that there is an indescribable joy, a promise of hope and full human liberation. I asked this question before. What compelled Peter to stand on that rock and give this message to a group of people who had accused him of being drunk? Hmm. I believe Peter knew what was at risk. I believe he knew what was at risk for him, his disciples, and most importantly, for humanity if he did not bring this message of hope and share this interceding power of the Holy Spirit. What rock are you being called to stand on? 
What interstitial space of injustice are you being called to step into? What's at risk if you don't? Whose life is at risk? My prayer this morning is that day by day, as we embark on this Easter season together, that we're reminded of our call, our call to step boldly into those spaces where inequity, injustice, and oppression seemingly reign, and that we cling to that promise of hope that Peter talks about and that each and every day we remind each other that Spirit intercedes on our behalf and we can and will have indescribable joy. May it be so.